Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. I want to ask you to turn to Psalm 81 this evening. If you need to outline, there's one up here on the table and one in the back on the little podium back there. And I've titled this uh, study tonight, Revival Cry Part 2, because it was in Psalm 82 weeks ago, I think it was, uh, that it also had revival as its theme. But uh, two very different contexts here in Psalm 80 and Psalm 81. Psalm 80, it took place after Assyria had invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. Psalm 81 takes place before that occurred. Psalm 80 was a call to repentance and revival in the midst of judgment. And Psalm 81 uh, is a call to repentance and revival prior to that discipline of God's people happening. I don't know about you, but I would just as soon get right before I had to experience God's purifying discipline rather than after I'm already feeling its effects. Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, said something to that effect once he said, if we will deal seriously with our sins, God will deal gently with us. And so may we learn to do that through God's message to us in Psalm 81 this evening. Let's read it. So sing aloud unto God our strength. Make a joyful noise to the God of Jacob. Take a psalm and bring hither the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the psaltery. Blow up the trumpet and the new moon in the time appointed on our solemn feast day. For this was a statute for Israel, a law of the God of Jacob. This he ordained in Joseph for a testimony when he went out through the land of Egypt where I heard a language that I understood not. I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were delivered from the pots. Thou callest in trouble, and I delivered thee. I answered thee in the secret place of thunder. I proved thee at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will testify unto thee. O Israel, if thou wilt hearken unto me, there shall no strange God be in thee. Neither shalt thou worship any strange God. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. So I gave them up into their own hearts' lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. I should soon have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto him, but their time should have endured forever. He should have fed them also with the finest of the wheat and with honey out of the rock should I have satisfied thee. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this song that you uh, gave to Asaph to give to your people, uh, to us here this evening, I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would reveal its truth to us, illuminate what it is you want us to learn. Uh, from Psalm 81. God, I pray that we would leave here 
rejoicing, remembering your goodness, and if need be, repenting of anything that's in our lives that doesn't belong there. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it starts out with a call to rejoice in verses 1 through 5. And we see praise in the first three verses. So as both a cause for and an effect of revival, there's nothing quite like rejoicing in the Lord. And that's exactly what we're commanded to do in the opening verse here of Psalm 81. It says we're to sing aloud to God our strength and make a joyful noise to the God of Jacob. Sing aloud because only the heartiest praise is proper to offer the Lord. Um, and, and loud, lost in awe of who God is. That type of singing is usually indicative of seriousness and, and sincerity in what we're uh, saying to the Lord. Uh, if your normal seating arrangement here at church is anywhere near the front pew where I usually hang out, uh, I hope you've noticed this in my life. If you have, um, I probably need to apologize too uh, because uh, it's not always a pleasant experience. Right, Lainey? I know she might have heard it tonight. Uh, it might be more like a joyful noise, like it's described further here in this psalm. But, but isn't our God worthy of loud and um, loud and joyful praise? And we're commanded to do this, not just here in Psalm 81, but throughout this hymnal, uh, throughout scripture really, and not because God is on some ego trip or, or that he's in need of our praise offerings. In fact, if we don't, the rocks, nature will cry out to him. Um, he, he commands us to do it because he knows that it is good for us. It's good for our happiness. And we do this all the time in other facets of life. I, I did it yesterday when I went to the West Bladen baseball game. And I heard many other people, some of y'all, doing it that were there. We, we offer loud praise when our favorite team makes an excellent play or when they win the game. Uh, we celebrate in praise over the one that we love. Might be little love notes. We might be pitching woo, telling them how wonderful they are. We do it. When we do it because our joy is incomplete until it's expressed. That's why God commands us to do it. Uh, we feel the joy more powerfully. We harbor happiness in our heart for a longer period of time when we actually express that joy. And that's why God frequently commands us in scripture to praise him. Because it's good for us. Our rejoicing in him will be more full. It'll be more greatly experienced when we obey this call to rejoice in him. Verse 2 says that we're to do it with musical instruments when we can, uh, if they're available. It mentions a couple here, the timbrel um, in the King James. So it's probably a hand drum or a tambourine in Asaph's culture. And there's the pleasant sound of the harp uh, with a psaltery. That'd be the ancient equivalent of, of Lewis's guitar up here. And I praise God that he's gifted Dublin First Baptist Church uh, with those who can help us fulfill this call to rejoice here in Psalm 81. Isn't it wonderful to praise the Lord? Amen. It is. Um, and um, verse 3 also mentions the trumpet. Got you, you got it, David, right? Now it says blow up the trumpet. Don't worry. It's not talking about actually blowing it up. Um, not literally. In Asaph's time, it, it would be used might, like we might use church bells. It was used to summon people, to call them to corporate worship. 
Tell them it's ready to begin. And the second half of verse 3 there, it indicates uh, when. It says the, the new moon, the time appointed. So this, was, this wasn't just a weekly meeting. This was a special corporate worship occasion here. It was one of the three high holy days that God had ordained that his people would come from all over the nation. Um, either Passover or the Feast of Booze, or sometimes we call it the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Trumpets. It's one of those three high holy days. Um, and there's a, some argumentation about which one he's referencing here. I think probably the Passover, because of verses that are talking about Egypt here, and just a little bit, but some people say the same thing. It, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's saying that this was a special worship occasion. So that's the praise. What's the purpose in this call to rejoice? Because we're not just given the tone, loud, joyful noise, and we're not just given the type of musical instruments to use in that praise, uh, what God desires. We're also given what should be the predominant theme or content of our worship when we do gather together and obey his call to rejoice. Verses 4 and 5 tell us, for this was a statute in Israel, the law of the God of Jacob. It was a command that God had ordained in Joseph for a testimony. Now, what is God talking about here? Well, he had commanded all of his people, all who were physically capable nationwide, to assemble for worship for these three high holy days. Actually, weeks. It'd be a whole week for them. And the command had been given long ago, it says here, really at the birth of their nation, at the beginning of them being God's people. When we read in Joseph, that's what it's talking about there. When they were enslaved in Egypt, and this is for, so here's the purpose, for a testimony. So not only does our obedience to God's call to rejoice, not only does it heighten uh, and complete our joy in him, but the content of our praise should communicate to us and it should communicate uh, to God a testimony. It's for a testimony. A testimony about who he is. A testimony about what he's done. A testimony about what he's promised to do. Kind of like just about every psalm that we've studied together for 80 songs now has done. And that's exactly what God has Asaph communicate as, as this revival cry continues now in verses 6 through 12. Our attention is conducted to a testimony here about who God is, what God's done, and what God's promised. First of all, who, who uh, I'm sorry, what, what he's done. Uh, there's a call to remember here in verses 6 through 12, an invitation in verses 6 and 7. We got this condensed, boy, it's condensed. Some Psalms, they're long and they describe every aspect of how God brought his people out of Egypt and what he did for them there. Here it's just in two verses, verses 6 and 7. I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were delivered from the pots. So the burden, making of all those bricks, in Egypt, the pots, probably those baskets would be one on each end with a pole going across where they would carry them from the kiln to where they were going to be used. And God invites his people here to remember what he saved them from. And we need to do the same if we're going to experience revival. If we've received Jesus Christ as our Savior, if we've been born again, if we've been freed from the bondage of slavery, of sin and death and hell, well, that ought to be a frequent consideration in our minds. should be a frequent theme whenever we sing loud songs of rejoicing. There's not much hope for revival if we fail to remember our revival when we first came to life. 
when he first delivered us. If we fail to remember that day, as verse 7 describes it, when we called out to God in our trouble and he delivered us, when he answered us in the secret place of thunder. And God's calling them here to remember the presence of the Lord that was in that cloud that led them through the wilderness. For us to be the presence of the Lord and the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ who comes to actually dwell in us. And verse 7 also speaks of when God proved them. When he tested the faith of his people at Meribah. That's where God's people quarreled with him. And they murmured against God's provision. Doubting whether he could provide them water there in the wilderness. Did he do it? Yeah. Because he's always faithful. He never fails. He came from, came from a rock. I've never gotten it from a rock before. Get it from the faucet. Get it from the gas station. Get it from a little pitcher on top. Came from a rock. Verse 8 continues this invitation. He says, Hear, O my people, and I will testify to you. And God says later in verse 8, If you would just listen and obey, he says, Hearken. There's hear and hearken. Hearken uh, adds a little more action to simply hearing. And this is the action that God wants his listening audience to do. And this is what he wants them to listen and obey, hearken to. Verse 9. It says, there shall be no strange God in thee, neither shalt thou worship any strange God. And I encourage you to take notice of God's warning here. Because at first glance, it just looks like maybe two phrases pretty much saying uh, the same thing. But the command is initially that no strange God should be in you or among you. And then that they should not worship any strange God. There's a difference there. The command, the second command given there is given because the first command was not obeyed. Listen, allowing idols in our homes or in our lives, that is only going to lead to the eventual worship of that idol. And of course, we're not talking here about for, for us little carved objects, but, but anything that we allow to take the place of God in our lives or to be more important in our lives than he is. You understand that that will never happen if we don't allow any idle access or presence. And I'm afraid too often we do allow their presence in our lives. And if we fail to listen to that first part of verse 9, we are going to subsequently find ourselves violating the second part. You want to talk about a major obstacle to experiencing any revival? And so here God's inviting us to, to get them out and to lay them down in confession and repentance at the cross of Christ. To restrict any room that they out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. God's saying, remember who I am. I'm the God who rescued you. I'm the God who saved you. And open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That's his invitation in this revival cry of Psalm 81. Is, is it your revival cry? I mean, is this what you want? What God's offering here? He cannot fill what's already full of lesser things. He won't come in and fill when there's already stuff there that we won't let go of. So can we learn from the wrong response of God's people Israel in the next verses? Because they rejected this invitation of verse 10. There's insolence here. Verse 11 tells us that, that they didn't hearken. They did not listen and obey. They made a choice. It's a crazy phrase at the end of verse 11. And Israel would 
in the King James, would none of me. They wanted none of God. Now that's an unusual description because if we look at the consistent history from Genesis to Malachi, um, Israel did want some of God. But God says what he says here in verse 11 because that offer, that option is never on the table. They were none of me. Just like God's people then, it pains me that much of the evangelical church and even in my own life, there's times when we want some of God. And we're more than happy to add a little Jesus to our life. But again, that's never an option that God gives us. Never. It's all or nothing at all. They would none of me. And anything less than all, it's insolence. It's rude and disrespectful behavior to approach the one who created us and who sustains us, who woke you up this morning and who saved us and communicate to him just how much of him that we're willing to take right now. That's why he never offers and he never dispenses fragmentary grace. What's his grace like? It's full, isn't it? It's amazing. He pours it out. That's why the invitation is always open wide your mouth and I'll fill, I'll fill it. Not have a sip. Not here's a crumb to get you through. Not take what you want or what you need because we don't know what we need. He does. He does. We need him. And we need all of him. That's why God commands us in Psalm 37.5. He says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Commit. And the, the idea in the Hebrew there is having a burden, a big heavy uh, burden on your back. And you just release it and lay it down and say, that's yours. Take it all. Back in verse 8, the first word is, is here. In the Hebrew, it's Shema. And there's a, a passage known as the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, or hear God's people, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall what? Love the Lord your God with what? All. All your heart. And all your soul. And all your strength. We take all of him and we give him all of us. Romans 6. We're told, not to even present part of ourselves, not even part of ourselves as an instrument of sin to unrighteousness, but instead we're to present our whole selves to God as an instrument for righteousness. We take all of him and we give him all of us. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know that passage well. We're told there that the only, the only response to the gospel that has just been described for 11 chapters is to present our entire body as a living sacrifice to God. And that's just a reasonable service. It's how we prevent conformity to this world and how we propel a transformation that comes from a renewed mind. We take all of him and we give him all of us. Church, that's revival, plain and simple, and there'll be no revival without it. And if we don't, if we like Israel, if we fail to do this long enough, would none of me. Well, verse 12 can happen. It says, So I gave them unto their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Don't think that God won't respond to his church this way in our day and age. Do you see what's described here? To me, it's the most frightening thing in the Word of God. God withdrawing 
his restraining grace from our lives. God letting us keep walking away. He didn't leave. We left. And I spoke to you about this on Wednesday night, I think, in the autumn. It reminds me of Hosea 4, 17. God sent the prophet Hosea to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he's given them instructions on what to say and what not to say. But he says, to the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea 4.17, Ephraim is joined to idols. They're wedded. He's married to it. Leave him alone. Let him alone. Don't go there. Don't speak. And the people of Ephraim wouldn't listen and obey. They wouldn't hearken. And God's repeated revival cries went out and invitations to place all of their faith and all of their joy in him. And they disobeyed verse 9 here. They allowed strange gods to be present in their lives, in their homes, in their communities. And then, of course, eventually worshiping them. That's what always happens. They wanted some of God. They did. But not all of him. And they sure weren't, sure weren't going to give him all of themselves. And so they'd experience what verse 12 describes here. They got to experience what this world described in Noah's day. When God said to Noah in Genesis 6, 3, my spirit will not always strive with man. There's a time element here. Wanting some of God, what we're being told tonight, wanting some of God is actually wanting none of God. And the revival cry is take all of him and give him all of you. There's a call to repent here in verses 13 to 16. That's the requirement for revival. You can boil it down to that right there. Repentance. This is what God wants from us. This is what God wants for us. Verse 13. Oh, that my people had hearkened, listened, and obeyed me. And that Israel had walked in my ways. That's what he wants from us. To listen and obey. To walk in his ways. We can quote that famous revival passage from the Old Testament. If we will humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. Turn. Repentance. That's a requirement for revival. And repentance, we need to understand what God describes it as in his word. It is more than sorrow. It is more than tears. It's more than feeling bad for where we are or who we currently are. Sorrow is necessary. God tells us in 2 Corinthians 7.10, it has to be a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. See, repentance is not just crying. Repentance is changing. And it's a requirement for revival. It's a requirement to experience the blessings that we read about in verses 13 through 16. If you look at what God promises, if we will, (laughs) verse 14, and I soon should have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. Enemies and adversaries subdued by God. Enemies and adversaries, you've got them, don't you? You say, well, I don't know. Don't look at anybody. You've got enemies and adversaries. I'll, I'll tell you this, none greater than Satan and sin and the wreck that he wants to make of your life. And if we will repent, if we will remember, if we will rejoice, I'm going backwards now here in Psalm 81. If we will open wide our mouths and let him fill us, ask him to fill us. If we will give him all of us, it says here, enemies and adversaries subdued. Strongholds of sin that are in our lives because we've allowed idols in and we've actually begun worshiping them. Idols invited in and worship, they will be subdued. They'll have God's hand against them. Their dominion in our lives destroyed. The chains that they've held us in broken. 
That is the result if we will repent. That's our tomorrow if we will turn. Verse 15 describes those who won't or who don't. It's describing people who just pretend with God, who fake faith and obedience. And their result, because it's not genuine, is everlasting punishment. And verse 16 says it does not have to be this way. It's God's desire that you open wide your mouth and let him fill it. Or as God says here in verse 16, feeding you with the finest of wheat and with the honey out of the rock, should I have satisfied you? Satisfaction. That's what God's holding out to us. That's his offer in this revival cry of Psalm 81. And the question before every single one of us here tonight is do you want it? Do you want it? Do you want all of him? You can have it. You can be filled. You can be satisfied. But you got to stop looking elsewhere. You got to stop trying to find satisfaction elsewhere. It's not there. Never has been. Never will be. It's here. It's right here. Only here. Only in him. And only in all of him. Ask Tommy and the praise team to come up as we close and worship only in giving him all of you. So won't you hearken? Won't you listen and obey his revival cry this evening?